Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone. My name is Michael Johnston, and I am a host on the New Books in Sociology podcast. Today I have Deborah Harris on the phone, Dr. Deborah Harris, who co-wrote Taking the Heat, Women, Chefs, and Gender Inequality in the Professional Kitchen by Deborah A. Harris and Patty Giffray. Dr. Deborah Harris is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Texas State. She earned her PhD from Mississippi State University and particularly teaches in the area of stratification and inequality, qualitative research methods, rural aging, and the sociology of food. Welcome, Deborah. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Excellent. That was a brief introduction. Could you tell me a bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm a sociologist uh, by training, and I work at Texas State University where uh, the most often things that I do teaching on, like for example, this semester I'm teaching courses to our undergraduates in qualitative research methods. Uh, And then in the fall, I generally teach courses in uh, food and society, which is a course I developed uh, kind of looking at the food uh, system from production through consumption and how so much of that relates to larger sort of social forces that impact people's lives. Um, so yeah, I've been uh, at Texas State about 10 years now and I've really enjoyed their ability to let me uh, find new research areas and new teaching areas and really encouraging me um, in these pursuits. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, as I started reading the uh, book, what really intrigued me is the history of professional mm-hmm. cooking. And if I remember correctly, uh, you discussed a bit about how it began in France and how it slowly mm-hmm. emerged as a as a profession uh, early on. If I remember correctly, there was a young man who was recruited off the street and who had one particular style of, of cooking that uh, slowly changed to more, more of a professional professional style. Could you talk about its early roots in France? Yeah, so when we think about chefs, we, we probably think about you know all the cooking shows that's on TV now or things we see on the web. Um, but really, what we consider sort of modern day chefs, modern cooking, originated in France, often in like the the eighteen, the early to mid eighteen hundreds. And so, a couple of the most popular um, or, or probably best known French chefs at the time were um, Antonin uh, Carême and uh, Auguste Escoffier. And so they overlapped a little bit, but uh, Carême is the one you're talking about. And he was basically, um, you know, an orphan child um, during the terror, you know, during the sort of French Revolution period, who was sort of picked up off the street by a baker and he was immediately started to, you know, work for, um, for the baker there in his shop and found out that he had these amazing, he, he took to it very quickly and began doing amazing sugar sculptures, things like that. That's very um, technical and hard to do. 
um, and very artistic. And so he was really the first sort of well-known chef. At this point, chef um, worked mostly for the nobility. The idea of restaurant culture like we have today didn't really exist. Um, so he was really gathered renowned as being a chef and was really one of the first people to do that. Uh, if you're really a, a culinary historian, you might say there's a few other people, but in terms of gender, um, he was probably, and at this point they're all he's, um, and he came from the French military at this time um, and then later. But uh, he was really one of the first people to start writing about being a chef and about cooking and, and really trying to elevate it as an art form. Uh, and then later, Escoffier, um, he's really uh, during the first what we think about as restaurants. And so he is the person who helped organize the kitchen that we see today into sort of the brigade system where you have the chef or executive chef and then you have like the chef de partie. You would have the sushi chef who's kind of over those uh, chefs, you know, the main person organizing things, and then, of course, the executive chef um, as the head of the kitchen. And and that varied in, in just how complex that organization got. But he was really the person who let us have modern-day restaurants because up until this point, things were not very organized. And so the idea of, like, you do this part of the dish and then you pass it on to this person. You sort of the sort of Fordism before it was really Fordism. Um, and he, you know, little things, too, like the chef hat, you know, is, is uh, something that he brought into the big toque. Um, so he's really represented as someone who really revolutionized and started modern restaurant culture and, and that we still see without really recognizing it, his influence today. Excellent. I think this would be um, the characterization that you made between homey versus hot and how it was mm-hmm. uh, gendered and distinguished as a, as a separate type of cooking, uh, the separation of the home and the professional restaurant. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And how was that gen- uh, I guess how did that begin uh, to be gendered as a, as a separate entity? And maybe what time, at least in the United States, did, uh, did that distinguish? Uh, distinguished character between the two locations begin? Well, I would say really from the very early part, like again, this early restaurants with Scofiers. So, I mean, we're trying as early as the 1800s. You know, this is, we're seeing this game sort of codified. I mean, with chefs, what they're all trying to do, both Karim and Scofier, what they're trying to do was to get um, more respect for what they did. I mean, they were doing work that was very beautiful and very technical and very skilled, but for many, many years, and I would say even up to the last couple decades, we've always tended to think of chefs as being a very working class, blue collar job. And so it was a job that didn't necessarily always get a lot of, um, of attention and a lot of status like we see today. And so for many years, what the early chefs were doing, the French chefs were trying to do, is to say, you know, our work deserves more you know, more reverence for what we do. We should get more attention. We should get more accolades because this really is um, very technical, uh, very learned work that it takes years to master. And the problem was, and this wasn't necessarily anything the men did um, uh, consciously, but at the same time, you have to understand that if, if cooking is what is at the heart of, of being a chef, it's really hard to argue and say, our job is the profession and it needs to be respected as such when the same thing, cooking, is being done in the homes for uncompensated, no no compensation, by women every single day. So versus different types of jobs that were trying to come up in the professional ranks this time, what made chefs different is women were doing the job already every day. And so then they were 
tasked with how do we find a way to elevate what we do and get people to see what we do as worthy of attention. And so part of what they had to do is to establish, no, what we do is so much different, more special, and more worthy of respect than what these women are doing. So they had to really sort of almost denigrate the home cooking and sort of do what we talk about, the home versus hope um, sort of differentiation. And so we had to say, no, what we're doing as chefs, you know, it's learned, it's skilled. Um, we do it out of a technical expertise and a desire to really um, showcase like our skills and what we can do and to really dazzle people and to, you know, come up with entirely new ways to eat and to dine and things like that. Versus women, it was seen as, oh, this is very serial. It, it comes from this desire to nurture, um, this desire to take care of young, to, to please the family. And therefore, it's more about the sort of day-to-day unspecial cooking. And so lots of things that they did, um, you know, upheld that and sort of the, the cultural field at the time regarding food, um, things like women weren't really writing um, cookbooks. And, and cookbooks isn't necessarily what we think about them today, but at this point, there are a lot of sort of treatises on food, and those were all being re- written by men. Um, and sometimes often written as in, if they were more of instructive, it was like, how do the men teach the women to do better? Uh, and also women were kept out of cooking schools, uh, cooking competitions. They weren't being hired in these sort of new restaurants. Again, it was pretty exclusively male, especially some of the French tradition. And that carried over into the new world in the United States because uh, when we were taking sort of our, our higher-end restaurants or fine dining, especially in the early parts of American restaurants, we were really borrowing very heavily from the French influence. And that went into even the social um, elements of who was allowed to be a chef. So this whole idea of, of home versus hope, I think, uh, was really established at this point in time. But we point out in the book that you see things about that still. Um, if you pick up a restaurant review or a chef profile, you know, a man will be given praise for revolutionizing cuisine and being a technical wizard and like a god in the kitchen. And women will be getting attention for like doing homey, nurturing food that's just like how grandma used to make. And so um, we did. We noticed that when we did um, analysis of of these restaurant reviews and chef profiles, over 2,200 pieces um, of food writing, that again, time and time again, men were celebrated for these sort of iconoclasts who were very intelligent and bringing their mind to it versus women, the sort of cooking from the soul. Not to say that that's not bad cooking, but it's not what is getting the sort of high status that we see chefs today being celebrated for. And then if I remember correctly, a large percentage of the women would be working not as chefs, but in the uh, back as prep cooks, preparing the for the day for the men to serve as chefs. And when they were in the uh, kitchen, they had to establish a reputation or they would mm-hmm. uh, or, or they would be pushed out of the kitchen. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so more recently when women have sort of moved into the professional cooking environment, the women we talked to, we interviewed over 30 women chefs uh, who were currently or who formerly worked as chefs, and they really talked a lot about how you had to prove yourself very strongly when you entered a kitchen. Um, it was never uh, assumed, even if you had a great resume, it was never assumed that you had 
a certain skill set. You had to prove yourself. So you had to prove both that you had the skills necessary, and that included, like you said, starting as a prep cook, even if that would be a step or two down from where you had been, um, and then, you know, proving yourself and working your way back up. Um, but even more importantly, we know they had to prove themselves socially. So they had to show that they fit into this masculine work culture um, that the men would kind of engage in almost a sort of hazing where they would, like, tease them, uh, they would make jokes, sometimes of a very sexualized nature. Um, and so women had to find a way to fit in and show that they could still operate um, and do their job even in the middle of all this. And that can include things like, oh, you know, making jokes back or, um, you know, even if it was something that was seen as sort of like, you know, beyond the pale, you know, maybe even getting a little, you know, tough back with the men and, you know, telling them that they're not allowed to have that that way of talking to them. Um, but it was really up to the women to prove that they could fit in. Um, and they very much had this idea that this is a work culture that will not change or will not accommodate me. I have to show the men that I can fit in and fit in seamlessly. So I have to be just as nasty as they, some of them talked about that in terms of how they spoke or joked or things like that. Or I just have to be tough. Um, they said, no matter what happens or, or, you know, what happens during a service, which is, you know, a massive undertaking to feed sometimes hundreds of people in a night and to do it flawlessly with very complex dishes um, around heat and knives and, and slippery floors and things like that. You know, it's a big undertaking. And so to fit into that, so to keep the work going, but um, also socially to fit in and not to rock the boat was very much um, encouraged for the women. And that was a very uh, interesting um, environment uh, and uh, the rituals that took place because uh, even there, there were insiders and outsiders uh, and mm -hmm. who, who it was acceptable uh, for to, to talk that way to the women. Could you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about the outsiders who, who could not talk that way to them? Yeah. I mean, when we started this, you know, as sociologists, we had read a lot about work um, and occupations and women in male-dominated fields. And um, there hadn't been really any work done on chefs in general in terms of the gender element, mostly. Um, and so one of the things we noticed, you know, having read sort of the literature on sexual harassment, is we knew that sometimes it was defined differently. Like what an outsider like us, like a sociologist, if I witnessing something, we would probably go, absolutely, that's sexual harassment, that can include groping, sexualized jokes, teasing, you know, filthy language, things like that. Um, but we found when talking to these women that they didn't always define things as harassment in sort of this traditional way. And it really depended on who the perpetrators were and what their relationship was to the woman chef. So um, if two people were equal, so if we were colleagues and you sort of like made like uh, what some people would say like a dirty joke, but then I laughed at it or I said an even dirtier joke or we sort of started teasing, that was considered part of proving that we, that the woman had fit in and that she had these men in her life um, that she was, um, that, that accepted her. So it was almost like, you know, kind of like when you go through a hazing, then you become a member of the group. And so, again, if you were on the same sort of parallel, if you were working, you're sort of horizontal in the organization, you could do that. And it was seen as um, just kidding around. It wasn't seen as problematic in many cases. Of course, that was only if it, it was just joking. If it got to touching, that kind of got things off the table. We can talk more about that later. But um, 
so that was considered okay. Um, now, if the manager or the the owner, the chef, the person sort of up the hierarchy did it, it was considered you know not okay because it was just you know part of like creating this environment that was sort of hostile and not very um, fun for women. Uh, and so that was considered you know not okay. You know they didn't like to feel pressured because as you can imagine from the sexual harassment literature, you know that is someone who has power over you. So it was considered not good, and that was much more likely to be um, defined as sexual harassment. And some examples the women gave were things like saying dirty jokes. Um, one woman, you know, talked about a man who would come up and like rest his head on her shoulder when she was working, and which of course put his his crotch right against her backside. Um, of course, doing that, you know, groping things like that. Um, uh, asking for sexual favors, that sort of thing. So um, that was considered bad. Uh, and then the other sort of outsider who was not considered okay to have this sort of camaraderie or joking with was people below them in the hierarchy, so people like dishwashers. Um, in the book, we don't really talk a lot about it, but, but there's also, I think, somewhat of a, a race component because in, in many kitchens, uh, the dishwashers are someone who is, um, you know, people who are Hispanic, people who are Spanish-speaking, um, uh, immigrant in many cases, not always, but uh, employees. And so they would sometimes try to join in on some of the, te- the teasing or they might hit on a woman chef or you know, express romantic interest in her. And that was considered not okay because it was kind of this thing like, you know, this is okay for, for me and this guy to do because we're the same. And so it's okay. Um, we're colleagues, we're comrades here versus we don't have the same relationship. So I'm taking from you, this seems hostile, this seems uncomfortable. Um, and so it was, so it was really depending on like how these women related to people in the hierarchy, how they viewed any of the sort of sexualized work environment. And the interesting piece of this uh, hierarchy is each time the women went to a new location, they had to reestablish their position within the mm-hmm. new kitchen. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't something that that stopped, you know, you there was really until you got into the point of really being an owner, there was never really a point of I have proven myself. Even if you had an amazing record, had won awards, and so you really could say this is my my restaurant, so you know, you have to follow my rules. There was that continuous like proving of oneself and sort of like going back down the hierarchy and working yourself up. This has all been uh, rather interesting. Are there any behaviors in the kitchen that uh, that were taboo uh, for the women or for the, the men to, to do in the kitchen? Well, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, the, the number one thing that we heard again and again from the women was, you know, do not cry in the kitchen. And they said, you know, do not be seen as crying because so much of fitting into a kitchen was to show that you're strong. Right. So crying in the kitchen showed that you were weak um, or they actually sort of judged and said, yeah, well, if you want to cry, you can cry, but you just don't leave your station. You keep doing the work um, or you go in and you take a couple minutes to cool off in the big walk in freezer. Maybe punch the wall a couple times if you're angry and then come out and get right back to work. Um, so crying was considered a big no-no. Um, and it was interesting because when you really sort of pull that apart and, and ask some questions about it, uh, it really gets in this idea of tokenism, right? Because there was oftentimes when women were working in the kitchen, they were one of the only women working there, if not the only. And so they found just like with sort of the, the idea of like, you know, um, sort of the 
the work um, that has been done about tokenism in the workplace and that tokens are these sort of numerical um, tokens are seen as if you do a behavior that's seen as negative, all the other people like you will be also given the same sort of negative view. So there's a one story uh, from our interviews that really stuck out when a woman got very angry because a woman working under her started crying and she took her aside and said, listen, you crying set me back five years because I've been working here. I've been taking it. And if they see you as weak, they're going to think every other woman is weak too. And that'll apply to me. And so that's why I'm angry. So the first thing was like not crying. And women were giving other women this, this advice, even in culinary school, there's a woman culinary school instructor. She would tell her female students, don't cry in the kitchen. So that was taboo. Um, other things that were considered taboo, um, one would be if you did suffer um, from sexual harassment, someone was bothering you, it was really inherent on you to take care of it yourself. It was really important for you to be the one to handle things. Because again, if you had to go to someone higher in the hierarchy, well, first of all, they might have been the person you know doing it, right? Um, but if you had to ask for help or ask for someone else to stand in, that was a sign, again, that you didn't fit in, that you were not tough enough to take it. And so um, it was very taboo to reach out to go to HR if something like that was available or to go to a chef. It was really supposed to be worked out between coworkers. Um, that was kind of the general um, way. Um, and then getting also with, with harassment, even though sometimes they had different views about what was considered harassment and what wasn't, uh, if it ever got to the point of touching, I think that was always a pretty clear thing of like, okay, that has crossed the definite line. That is not appropriate. That is harassment. Um, and so that should not be done. Um, so in that case, that was sort of seen as something that was considered, you know, quite taboo. Um, so I would say those were, were some of the main things that we saw that was just, you're not really considered appropriate um, behavior. Another one that would be kind of funny uh, is we write in the book about women when they moved up the hierarchy and they became leaders in the kitchen. So when they got promoted, especially ahead of the men chefs, some of the taboos about their behavior, um, some of the women took on a very masculine role because that's what they're used to seeing. And they're seeing this very sort of top-down, angry chef, you know, who yelled at people and, you know, made demands for what people to do. Um, and that was seen as, as not acceptable leadership for women. They were labeled a bitch and they were seen as poor leaders and that they did not reserve, you know, receive respect. Um, so that was a, bit of a sort of taboo. But then on the other hand, you couldn't be too friendly because if you're too nice, um, you were called slutty, which I remember one of the, the women talking about that. Like then people would think you were sleeping with other people you worked with or that you were just, you weren't good at your job and you're just sort of using this niceness and your, your feminine wiles as one, uh, person said to get ahead uh, so you couldn't be too mean you couldn't be too nice uh, and then we talked about like the the final thing was a lot of times they took on sort of the mother or the the sister the big sister role um to have a sort of feminine uh, authority figure that men could understand because that was always very much a sort of tension you know even if the men accepted the women when they moved ahead of them in the hierarchy, then you had to prove yourself again, and there was a lot more testing there, too. So I would say some of the taboos related to things like sexual harassment, 
um, crying in the kitchen. And just once you got to that leadership position, what was the best way um, to, to try to develop a, a source of leadership or a type of leadership style that said authentic to the women, but also, um, you know, got respect from the other people in the hierarchy. One thing that I noticed uh, that would be interesting is to, um, that wasn't included in the book, is the relationship that the kitchen had with the front of the house or the uh, mm-hmm. dining area. Is that something that you've looked, uh, looked into since writing the book? Uh, I haven't really looked specifically into that, but I have had a lot of that, is that there is so much of an interplay. I mean, uh, restaurants are this really interesting sort of microcosm where you have all these sort of different steers. Um, and so, yeah, so sometimes you may have a kitchen that is working well together, but the restaurant as a whole may be really dysfunctional because their relationship to the front of the house may be, um, you know, be very dysfunctional and there may be a lot of tension there. And so there's always kind of this, you know, you have these two very distinct sides of this workplace and how do they work together. Um, and I know in some of the gender issues, you know, something that would come up is some of the, the women chefs would get frustrated because their male colleagues would hit on or make sexualized comments to the women waitresses or hostesses that came to the back, if that ever happened. Um, and so that kind of added to that sexualized work environment in a way that the women weren't really happy with. Uh, but other than that, I didn't give a lot of, uh, of look to the front of the house, but that is a, a interesting, uh, that whole interaction there is always such a fascinating thing to look at, especially I'm sure people would, would know this if they've ever worked in a restaurant. The, the dramaturgical analysis that could take yeah. place just from the front stage and backstage, the interplay that's that's ongoing in a restaurant, uh, I find it quite fascinating. I worked in the mm-hmm. restaurant industry for six years, and I went to uh, two years at a community college that primarily was known for their uh, their culinary arts program. So oh, mm-hmm. uh, I've been in it for a while, not studying it, but uh, observing it. So I find this quite interesting, mm-hmm. and, and, and thank you for the research. Oh, no, it's, it was such a, it's been such a joy and such a fun, fun topic, but also I think one really rife with sociology. Fortunately, we're all out of time uh, for today. However, uh, what are you working on now? Could you, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your current projects that you have in play? Okay, well, right now I'm doing a, um, I'm doing a couple of applied projects. So the really interesting thing about this book that I didn't anticipate, and I don't think, uh, Patty's your friend, Nick, colleague did either, um, how many people have really been interested beyond sociology? So I've done a lot of like speaking and um, to groups that focus on women chefs and just chefs in general. So I've done a lot of work in terms of like going and speaking before groups about what, you know, what can we do to make the industry more hospitable to women? Um, and so in terms of research, I'm currently doing a couple of applied projects with uh, the James Beard Foundation, which is, um, you may have heard them call this like the Academy Awards of Food. They, they give out these yearly awards. They do a lot of other things, too, but they're sort of known for sort of recognizing and promoting sort of the creme of the crop of American food and chefs. And so they've come up with it. They recognize, again, that, that women are such a minority, only 20% of, of head or executive chefs are women. And so they want to address some of this. So they've come up with a couple of uh, mentorship programs, uh, some for women brand new to the industry, and then an entrepreneurial program that's brand new where they take women who do own a food-related business and how can we give them some of the business skills that they can go and maybe expand their business, open another location, move in. 
So um, what I'm doing with them is to help giving some feedback to these programs and uh, how can we make them stronger, make them more um, relevant for the people who are in them to, to sort of get the most sort of bang for their investment, you know, to, to really help move uh, women along in this industry and to give this really great resource to some women. Um, and so from there, I started getting really interested in sort of the idea of women's entrepreneurship, which lots of people have studied, but um, just the barriers and how if women sort of becoming, quote unquote, the boss is what allows them to really shape workplace culture, how can we best do that? If, if we want to look at a more gender equal um, sort of workplace, getting more women in charge, it seems like from talking to these women chefs does help um, address, it doesn't make everything perfect. Putting women in charge doesn't fix everything automatically, but um, it does allow them to set rules that sometimes make it better to balance work and family, um, reduces things like discrimination and harassment and things like that. So what are some of the barriers to women's entrepreneurship? Um, especially in a job like being a chef where it's so all-encompassing, but at the same time you need this business acumen that you're not really taught in culinary school. So that's been really interesting and something that um, I've gotten more and more interested in uh, in sort of recent months because of this project. Excellent. I look forward to, to seeing future uh, future articles and future uh, books from you. And um, please, with your next book, I, I invite you to um, be part of the show again uh, and keep in touch through email and through phone. And I, I look forward to to learning more about your uh, about your research in uh, applied sociology uh, as well as uh, the theoretical piece of it. Well, thank you so much. 